Welcome to episode three of Bootability, a weekly interview series about the amazing ability people have to change our lives and the world if we're brave enough to tap into it. These are honest conversations with people of all walks of life, reflecting on their own bootability, what it looks like, how it feels, and how the philosophy of SGI Nichiren Buddhism, which is based on the practice of chanting Nam Myoho Renge Kyo, can be used to bring it out. I'm your host, Jihi Jolly. I always tell people, you know, once we, we straighten this stuff out, we have to decide the person you want to be. Hmm. Who do you want to be? Because it takes sustained, consistent effort to challenge habits, to challenge karma, if you want to call it karma, uh, and transform it. Mm-hmm. So therapy is it can give you the tools for self-awareness, but it it's not a philosophy and it's not a religion. It can only get you to a certain level. Today's guest is psychotherapist Sean Grover, who is based in New York City and specializes in working with adults and children, and especially in group settings. He's also been practicing SGI Nichiren Buddhism for a long time, so we invited him to the show to help explain what self-transformation actually takes, how Buddhism helps, and how it's different from mindfulness, self-awareness, and positive thinking. It's a fascinating conversation, and my biggest takeaway was that human beings can really only heal and grow through relationships. So if you want to be truly happy, you have to care for yourself well, but you also have to care for other people well. Chanting Nam Myoho Renge Kyo is a way to go straight to the source of your ability to do both. You can always check the show notes for a breakdown of topics if you ever want to come back to a section. But now, let's meet Sean. So let's just start with introductions. You know Bootability is a new podcast. You know who I am, but... um, who are you? Maybe just, you know, your name, what you do, and a little bit about your, your professional background. My professional background. Okay. My name is Sean Grover. I've um, been a psychotherapist for 25 years. I work with children and families, and most recently with groups. I love working with groups of people. I'm going to ask a lot of questions about psychology, but for people who don't know you, how did you start practicing Buddhism? Why did you start practicing Buddhism? That is a great question. Uh, I think like most people who come into the practice, you meet someone who really impresses you, like really like, wow, like they they have a certain energy. They're like positive or uh, they sort of stick out. And uh, I was invited to a meeting a number of times by the person who introduced me. And I think at that point I was 25 years old and I just was transitioning out of college where you come to New York with your dream, you know, like bags full of dreams. And then one at a time they fall apart. And you have no life philosophy. And I think I was so depressed uh, just before then. And I, I, mean, I, I had started this comedy club because I was a comic and I wasn't getting bookings. I think I wasn't very good. And so I said, well, I'll start my own club and I'll be the star of the show. Um, and that's where I ran into Mike. But basically, I was really miserable. He was always helping me out with favors. And, and I was like, OK, Mike, I, I'm going to go to this meeting. So when I went, um, two th- it was the first time I heard people chanting Nam Yoho Renge Kyo. And two thoughts popped into my head. One is, why did I agree to this? And how do I get out of here? 
uh, because it was just so bizarre. Uh, so, <laughs> but but the people again were so positive and happy. I never met anyone like them, and I started practicing, and I I've never stopped for a day. It was it was like a nourishment that it's something I'm starving for that I didn't know I was starving for. Huh. Wait. So in between you wanting to get out of the meeting. Um, like, how do I get out of here to enjoying chanting? Like, what was the, why did you enjoy chanting or want to do it? That's right. I, I think everyone comes into practice because, and this is my work as a, as a therapist and certainly as a group therapist, because of relationships. Uh, you develop these relationships and you may think, I may think, well, I don't know about this stuff, the chanting really works, but these people are amazing. And, mm-hmm. and when I went through my life, I had unwittingly, come across members. I had a college professor when I was 19 who was an SGI member, and he, was, he changed my life. He, he had so much confidence in me when I had none. Huh. It, there has to be something to the practice. And uh, having moved to the city at the height of the AIDS epidemic, people were dying. So I really, it, it made me consider uh, when I was started to practice, like, how can I create more value? And then I discovered social work, hmm. uh, where I got my master's. And for 12 years, I designed and ran and hired and wrote grants and programs in some of the worst schools, good, goodness, uh, in New York. And uh, I loved it. I loved it. Uh, and working with people, uh, and this practice, you know, Mahayana Buddhism is. Buddhism of the people, so it really reinforced my work. Everything I do, I'm more of a Buddhist therapist than people realize. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a encouraging to hear that it was born out of your seeking to do something meaningful. Um, why don't we just start with the people, since you just mentioned the people. The people. <laughs> Maybe if you can, you know, um, from kind of a psychology perspective, um, Walk me through sort of like what are some of the typical things that you see people struggling with that brings them to therapy? Well, I've been thinking about this a lot recently. Uh, I don't think we have a coherent understanding of happiness. We're trapped in this idea, you know, it's even in the Constitution, you know, the pursuit of happiness, right? But how do you pursue happiness? Because happiness is an effect. It's a byproduct of a way of being. So how do you pursue a shadow? You know, you need to go for the object and then the shadow moves. So I think people, uh, you know, if we look at happiness, if I want to be happy, does that mean materialism? Does that mean uh, I'll be happy if I have a relationship? I'll be happy if I have a home? I'll be happy. You know, we need these things. But um, when people come in, they may have all these things. How we look at happiness, and you know, in a, maybe in a capitalistic country, we get drawn into this idea where we become dependent on things for happiness. Uh, so when people come to therapy, the, and certainly when I went to therapy, I was bankrupt emotionally. Uh, whatever systems I had in my head weren't working. And when I work in group with people, uh, I often say, you, know, you, you didn't join group to do what comes naturally because what comes naturally isn't working you're here for something new so um, when people come into therapy 
they're unhappy and we had to unpack that. And the Buddhist uh, theory of you know, relative happiness and absolute happiness is a, is a guiding light for me and my work. Hmm. That's interesting. What I'm hearing from you is that depending on something externally, and this is just a core tenet of Buddhism, is not the way to achieve happiness. Um, but sort of, could you tell me more about like what happens? Like what are some examples of the things that when you spend your life um, pursuing happiness outside yourself or not having the way of being that's going to help you? Like where do people sort of end up or what are the types of crises that they kind of show up in therapy with? Right. Well, we're looking, at, we're looking basically at relative happiness versus absolute happiness in Buddhist terms. Uh, if I'm working with parents, I will often substitute esteem-building happiness. Esteem-building happiness is built on, built on a person's identity, right? It's not dependent on uh, what kind of clothes they wear, what kind of sneakers they're wearing, what kind of music they like, the crowd they're with. So if I'm working with an adult in therapy and they're sharing if I ask them, share, just tell me a memory of your childhood that you really cherish. It generally is built around an esteem building happiness. They played their first concert on guitar. They read their essay in front of the class. They, these are things that you carry with you your entire life. If I ask them about gifts or presents they received, they really struggle to remember. They remember something big. But those esteem building things built on who they are, their particular talents, their unique voice, um, those are the things that can't be taken away. Relative happiness, which is that dependent form of happiness, really makes you slave to some object or to some material thing. So if you're too dependent on relative happiness, it keeps you in a state of dependency. Now, a state of dependency means you can't stand uh, on your own. You have to be attached to something to feel like mm. solid. So people who, who uh, often take, go down that track will often find themselves running out of gas a lot because relative, relative happiness you know, runs out. The batteries go dead. Uh, the car gets in an accident. Uh, your income, you get you know, laid off. You know, whatever, the, you're constantly, with relative happiness, is constantly shifting and changing. And, and you're sort of a slave to your circumstances. With absolute happiness, you're dealing with a core sense of yourself. And Buddhism really, look, to me, Buddhism, we're looking to create a sustainable happiness in the face of suffering. How do we create sustainable happiness in the face of suffering? Because suffering is inevitable. Hmm. That's a great way to put it, yeah. And it sounds so hard. But I do have follow-up questions to the, uh, about all of that. But first, um, I just want to understand a little bit more of the landscape of now. So um, from what I've observed and from what many of my peers are experiencing, um, Buddhist or non-Buddhist, we're seeing a huge sort of normalization of therapy. Stigma is no longer attached to therapy in many communities where it previously was. And then there's also mindfulness and how there's just universal understanding that it is how you're going to solve your problems and get rid of your anxiety. Um, all of that is happening. So I just would love to hear from you um, kind of what what does it entail? Because you've also written about being self-awakened. And I think that's also something people are beginning to understand. Like you have some kind of power and you you have to be able to observe your own mind or your own thoughts, right? 
So could you just walk me through um, why do we have to be self-awakened? What does it actually entail? And kind of what's your take on this whole mindfulness thing? So basically, there's a decision-making process as we move through the world. On a basic animal level, it's impulse action, impulse action, impulse action, impulse action, which, you know, may help us survive, uh, but it's also a very dangerous way to live uh, because, and this is why young children need strong parents, because they're all impulse action based. Uh, Basically, when you go into therapy and you become self-aware, there's more of a four-step way of uh, approaching decision-making, which you have the impulse, and this is the big one, reflective pause. I have the impulse, the reflective pause, then I'll make a decision and take an action. That process, the reflective pause process, that alone can change the outcome of an entire life. So when you go into therapy, you do a lot of self-work. You do a lot of work on your family, on your history, on uh, your upbringing, on your parents, on your siblings, every historical aspect of makes, what makes you, you. The difficulty is with therapy, if you look at a lot of mindfulness, which is very important, self-care, very important, but there is a tendency after you've done that work, it can sort of lead to a selfish lifestyle or an egotistical lifestyle. So what I'm looking for when I'm working with people after we lay the groundwork for self-awakening or self-awareness and they're hungry for growth and they want more, then I'm always interested in how can they create value now. Hmm. Uh, and if you look at studies, boy, these days you don't hear anything about this, but if you look at studies on altruism, people that help other people, uh, there's enormous energy and esteem that get, they draw from that. You know, so when um, there was an experience of an SGI member I read uh, just a few years ago that blew me away, and I see this with SGI members all the time. They have this job, they're successful in it, but they, they don't feel like they're creating value. How can I create more value? And this was a young woman who was uh, doing makeup for movies, and she began to chant and began to, to think about this. I have this great job, I make a great income, but how can I create more value? And through her practice, she started to develop prosthetics for people who were injured, who had like major tra traumatic uh, injuries, so she could recreate ears and noses and all these things. Suddenly her work went to a whole nother level. And I think in therapy, it's very important to cross over. I always tell people, you know, once we, we straighten this stuff out, we have to decide the person you want to be. Hmm. Who do you want to be? Because it takes sustained, consistent effort to challenge habits, to challenge karma, if you want to call it karma, uh, and transform it. Hmm. So therapy is, it can give you the tools for self-awareness, but it, it's not a philosophy and it's not a religion. It can only get you to a certain level. Hmm. Uh, and the evidence of this is, you know, I, a lot, I, I know a lot of therapists who are depressed, uh, therapists who gone through really horrendous divorce situations or uh, are really struggling and unhappy. You know, so therapy has its limits. It really has its limits. So in my work with people, I really want to 
work on that foundation of self-awareness. Uh, but then I want to see, I want to talk about value, what we would call the Bodhisattva vow, you know, uh, where you want to help people as a part of your own journey toward enlightenment. You can't do that in isolation. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, that's so interesting, the, the limits of therapy. But I'm curious if you had to just kind of put it plainly, what is the, the limit? So for someone who doesn't practice Buddhism, the therapist can give you what and then what, like, what part of it is up to you after that. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a relationship, right? Uh, so the only thing that heals people is relationships. People can only heal people. So it's in the course of a relationship with the therapist or the work together in the relationship you have with them that is healing. So if you grew up with a great high degree of distrust, if you grew up with a high degree of um, fear and you cultivate trust with the therapist, you cultivate closeness or intimacy, you begin to heal those parts of yourself. So the therapist is always in my opinion, the therapist should always be on the lookout to challenge you in that way. Hmm. I always say patients only grow as much as their therapist. If the therapist is challenging themselves and growing, their patients will challenge themselves and grow. If the patient, if the therapist has settled into sort of a low level depression, a functional depression, their patients will settle into a low level functional depression. So the personality of the therapist, the, char- the therapist and the character of the therapist really has an effect on the work. Hmm. Uh, and I, I, I've said this before, but I know if, if couples come in and uh, they're looking for a couples therapist, which is very difficult, couples therapy, um, I know, well, if I refer them to so-and-so, they'll probably get divorced. <laughs> and if I refer to so-and-so, they'll probably stay together. And that, in that way, you know, with Buddhism, and that's where my... Buddhist practice and my therapy practice are really linked. You know, something happened to me recently. I was chanting in the morning and I had this crazy thought like, am I really a Buddhist or am I just talking like a Buddhist? And, and it really bothered me. And I thought, well, I'm chanting. I thought, well, why, why am I thinking about that right now? And then I realized, you know, I, my, one of my oldest friends uh, we had a falling out about three years ago. We hadn't talked in three years. So mad at each other, furious with each other. And so I'm there chanting. I'm like, if I'm holding a grudge, I'm not really a Buddhist. Hmm. Uh, so I started chanting about this friend. And right after I finished the morning prayers, I text him. And I said, hey, John, I miss you. And he responded like immediately, like, me too. And we set up, this is two weeks ago, we set up a meeting. We sat on a park bench, like two old men, you know, social distancing. And, and we l- spoke for two hours. And I realized, like, that came out of my practice. That came out of self-awakening. That came out of self-reflection. But with Buddhism, with Mahayana Buddhism and Buddhism of the SGI, you're on the lookout for those things. You want to challenge those things because the lesser self was justified in being angry. I think I was, if I sit with it, yeah, yeah, I'm glad I was angry. But that, why leave it there? You know, every 
big problem I've ever had in my life has come from my ego, hmm. without a doubt. It's come out of stubbornness, short-sightedness, uh, temper, just ego-based decisions. But I think having every morning to sit down and chant about my relationships and how I conduct myself, am I living with carrying grudges? Uh, am I just speaking words, but do I really believe them? Hmm. So as a therapist, you're essentially helping people figure out what's getting in the way of their Buddha nature or for the purposes of this podcast, what we're calling their Buddha ability to yes, come out, right? Absolutely. Um, so what sort of like what gets in the way? What What is changing yourself actually require of a person? What do they have to do or what and what is hard about it? Right. Right. Um, well, okay. Let me put this in as simplest terms as possible. Self-mastery is relentless. It never ends. You know, to master your own mind, which is a quote from Nichiren Daishonin, is a life's work. So uh, I often will ask people, are you making the growth choice? Or are you making the habitual choice? And that usually stops them. You know, someone was ranting about politics the other day and how she was going to avoid this particular person who had different. And I was like, that's certainly an option, but what's the growth choice? You know, to have a dialogue, to talk with that person. Um, so um, what gets in the way is our ego. I know with me, my ego certainly gets in the way. Uh, my sort of pettiness or grudges. You know, Buddhism provides a whole system of analyzing yourself, you know, which every morning when I sit down to Chan, it's like my therapy session uh, with myself. So that's the Bodhisattva vow. You do not learn that in therapy school. You do not learn in grad school. You know, that's been the, the core of my practice and will continue to be. Hmm. Yeah, that's really encouraging. When you say Bodhisattva vow to somebody who's not Buddhist, yes. like what would you... What is the Bodhisattva vow in like plain English? <laughs> well, thank you for that question. <laughs> um, the Bodhisattva vow in plain English. We could also say living the law. Mm. Which is, uh, the Bodhisattva vow uh, for me is a vow to walk the walk and talk to talk. That if I'm going to be a Buddhist, I have to be a Buddhist in everything. No, I can't cheat. Hmm. I can't be a Buddhist in this podcast and then be a horrible father or uh, insensitive husband. Uh, uh, the Bodhisattva vow really means committing to a, a way of being, uh, which to me comes down to authenticity, compassion, uh, care, empathy, uh, and really with... Uh, Buddhism, we're talking about community. In Mahayana Buddhism, enlightenment happens in the space between people. You need other people in your journey to enlightenment. You know, we may want to live on a mountaintop, but we all work in the valley with each other. So we've got to figure out how to get along. And I think if we look at, you know, the situations we're in where there's even international um, tensions or war or races, it's really... Um, uh, 
we get caught in these ideas or these projections of what people are. We're not relating to them who they are, but what they are. And I think the Bodhisattva vow is is an idea that we are all equal. Hmm. We all have this essence. We all have this enlightenment. I mean, hearing you say that, actually, I never thought of it that way, but it's um, it's like a, such a refreshing way to look at happiness, what you said in the very beginning. Like um, happiness is the byproduct of a way of life, and that yes. way of life is the bodhisattva vow. That is abs. Wow, you said it perfectly. <laughs> Could we let me write that down? <laughs> that was really, you know, the bodhisattva vow. It's it comes with a cha- a vow is a, you know, Daisaku Akita says a vow is a prayer infused with energy. You know, and I I think as we move through the world with a bodhisattva vow. Um, it empowers us to with greater wisdom hmm. and greater patience, greater empathy. So we don't go through that old impulse action, impulse action, impulse action, which will ultimately destroy us. Hmm. Ultimately, the world is a mess because people don't know how to manage relationships. They do not know how to manage relationships on a global level or on an intimate level. And my work as a group therapist, which has been the last... Uh, you know, really the, the bulk of my work the last 15 years, I'd say, has been relationships. Hmm. You know, it's, I really didn't expect that this is what you would say because it, it just makes, I, I've been focus, so focused on like the impact of chanting, hmm. um, which is undeniable, but I, I just have always taken for granted just being around so many different kinds of people and being vulnerable with them. Um, actually, that's, totally like relationship training that's right and it becomes it's an it's an early imprint if we look at psychology we're looking at these imprints the culture of the family the culture of a family doesn't mean what language they speak or what complexion they have or pigment of their it means the culture of the relationships in the family uh so that's as a therapist i'm always looking at what what is the culture of the family this person grew up with what kind of culture do i want to create in my own family you know, this Bodhisattva vow exists in all people. We call it different things. Uh, but I remember uh, uh, during September 11th, I worked in the crisis center, which was they had converted uh, Chelsea Piers. It was a soccer fields and things. They converted it to a crisis center the day of September 11th. And so social workers, we all want to be on the front lines in that kind of situation. So I, I was working at the crisis center and I was sitting at a table and there were these people coming up looking for their father worked in building one or my uncle worked in building two so we're taking names we're taking all this information the buildings are gone we know that this is an epic epic event that thousands of people died and that probably everyone looking for someone probably there you know but we didn't have any information so i'm sitting at this table taking these names hours and hours people coming up to me coming up to us and we're we're just feeling i just felt like this is the worst moment i've ever faced as a therapist like i felt like i was running out of hope so i remember i had my head in my hands and i just said i need a break 
And I, I stood up and went outside to the highway. And on the highway was hundreds of people coming that wanted to volunteer. Doctors, and ambulances, and, uh, parents, people carrying food, carrying blankets, people wanting to give blood, all thousands of people, ambulances coming from states away, driving from Pennsylvania, from Boston. What can we do to help? In that moment, I said, that's the Bodhisattva vow. It awakened, it's awakened in moments like that. What can I do? How can I be of service? And that, when I got back to the table, I was completely refreshed. I was no longer alone. And so I think the Bodhisattva vow is a great uh, concept that we could probably learn from other religions, what they call it, being of service or a moment of grace. But that is an endless well of energy, an mm -hmm. endless well. So self-awakening uh, self or self-reflection, mindfulness, that's all self-focused. The Bodhisattva vow is a fusion of the self and other. What can I do now mm. to help this person? And that great quote from Nichiren, uh, when you light a lantern for another, your own way is also illuminated. I think that's a, another uh, core value mm. of uh, Nichiren Buddhism within the SGI. We're always lighting lanterns for others and bright, brightening our own way. Yeah, absolutely. Based on what you just said, just to follow up on that, mm -hmm. um, one thing that I think a lot of young people especially feel or sort of what you what you observe on social media for example about mindfulness and therapy and self-transformation because there's so much content now too it's um there's this narrative of um i have a limited amount of resources so i need to take care of me right now and it's okay that i need to take care of me so don't ask me for anything world and then when i'm better i'll think about you again do you know what i mean mm -hmm. And there's something about that that it just doesn't feel like how Buddhism works to me. Um, mm -hmm. And so I'm curious how how you would address that or um, like why does self-transformation work better when you're doing me and others together versus first me, then others? Does that make sense? Yeah. So self-care, especially for a therapist, is extremely important. It's... Uh, you're giving a lot all day and you've got to give to yourself. So the idea of, yeah, I practice self-care. You know, uh, my wife and I do yoga three days a week. I go for my runs or walks or swims. But I think what people don't realize is you can, how you function in relationships is really crucial. If you perform in relationships, if you're uh, inauthentic in some way, or if you're worried about, I want people to like me or I'm avoiding conflicts. You're, you're compromising yourself constantly. And also it's a drain on your energy. Uh, so the idea, you know, if people say like, oh, I just can't deal with those people. I may want to say, well, how do you manage your feelings around people? You know, are you performing? Because you can't perform all the time. People perform have difficulty in group settings because they usually adjust themselves to people 
based, you know, on a one-on-one. They, they sort of make these adjustments so they can, but in a group, you can't adjust to 12 people or 10 people. So I think what the, mis, the misunderstanding about that is the drain of, uh, of helping people or working with people generally comes from some level of repression or suppression of your own needs in that relationship. Is that making sense? Yeah. So it's not the other person that's draining you. It's the choices you're making to repress your own needs, to repress your authentic feelings. Repression always drains energy. You know, so if you're feeling drained by relationships or helping people, it's not that people are draining you. It's how you're managing yourself that is you're draining yourself. My mentor, uh, Louis Ormond, who's the father of American Group Psychotherapy, uh, I was really an honor to work with him for so many years, and he really took me in and trained me. He always said you should have more energy at the end of the day than the beginning. If you're working correctly with people, when you leave your office, you should have more energy. And remarkably, it's true. Wow, that's really interesting. And this, I mean, it actually touches on, so when I originally called you and I said this is an episode about um, the difference between a positive mindset and inner transformation. Yes. I mean, I still have that, that question, but just based on what you said, it, it almost sounds like um, an element of a positive mindset is repression. But inner transformation is so much deeper. Like you have to get yes. in touch with yourself. Well, think that's right. Well, that's the danger of positivity. If you engage with um, reality is not all positive. It's not that we, we have some real issues to deal with in society that we've got to wrestle with. But if we just say, well, everything will work. Everything always works out in the end. I don't know. Hmm. Self-reformation uh, is far more challenging. It's far more challenging. Yeah, absolutely. Just also hearing you say that, do you think that that's a difference between um, therapy and, and chanting? I, I would think that like what, what happens in therapy needs to be so conscious and kind of focused on, on what it is that you're trying to address. But like Buddhism is this like crazy all-encompassing thing where your whole life changes and you maybe didn't even intend to change some parts of it. Absolutely. What's the difference between the inner transformation that we can achieve through um, therapy or intellectual self-improvement practices versus through Buddhism? They can work hand in hand. Okay, so Buddhism and psychotherapy, uh, Buddhism adds rocket fuel to your therapy. They work perfectly together. You know, the thing about self-awareness and mindfulness uh, this will give you a sense of presence and being, you know, in the moment and being with people. But growth, in my experience as a Buddhist, and what I say to my patients, at a certain point, it's a force of will. It will not evolve naturally. You have to make a decision, you know. So I feel like um, self-awareness is, is another tool of therapy. It's, it's really another tool. Uh, but when it comes to driving your own destiny, that's a, a Buddhist core value 
uh, that separates us. I think our way of being and elevating uh, elevating our, our state of life, uh, improving our relationships, reflecting on our choices, reflecting on our own behavior, that evolves you on every level. That's the tide that raises all boats. So at times we focus on this goal or this thing we want to do, and that's great. But other things are changing all the time. Hmm. That's a great way to put it. You know, I think I'm a much better father today than I was two years ago. And a way better father than I was five or seven years ago. And certainly a better husband. Uh, So, and I'm just going to get better. Uh, You know, I'm not finished. That kind of uh, attitude that I learned from practicing Buddhism is really the fountain of youth. It's, it's, as Daisaku Arketa says, it's a stream that we can tap into. When you're working on yourself, you're infusing yourself with youthful energy. Hmm. You're not static. You're not finished. That's all we have time for from our chat with Sean today. But if you enjoyed the show and want to learn more about chanting and the practice, please visit bootability.org and don't hesitate to get in touch using the Connect form on the site. And if you're liking the podcast, please leave us a rating or review and don't hesitate to reach out to me at podcast at sgi-usa.org. Tune in next week for an inspiring story and conversation about how to turn your passion into your career, especially if your passion is solving the climate crisis. That's it for today, and we will see you next week.